Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Save the World. And today I'm going to save you from underachievement. There are some people in the world who are just too good at too many things, and I've found one of them. It's always fun to uh, find someone who is so deeply impressive. You don't know whether to high-five them or grab a tissue with that free hand and just soak yourself in a puddle of your own tears because you'll never, ever match up to these accomplishments. Um, Neil Hirschman is a nice young man. He's only 27 years old. He has already summited Everest. He has done something called an ultra triathlon, which is continuous. It's not... Ultraman that takes place over three days. It is one long race, a 7.2 mile swim. Try doing that ever. A 336 mile bike and a 78.6 mile run to top it off. He did that. And he summited Everest. And he has uh, degrees in finance and astrophysics from the George Washington University. He and his wife, Sharon, just had a baby girl, but he's all ready for the sleep deprivation because he's done these crazy races where you race literally for four days and you have no idea where you are. And on top of that, he's the CEO of 16 Handles. He also owns Dippin' Dots NYC and Captain Cookie NYC. Uh, This is very exciting news because my daughters love 16 Handles and it is a soft serve emporium. They have frozen yogurt, they have ice cream, they have sorbet, they have a vegan partnership with Oatly. This man has done too much. And he hasn't even reached 30. Uh, This is unreal. Neil, I don't know what to say about you other than holy crap. Well, thank you very much. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the the, uh, very warm introduction. I'm very happy to be here. What's the first thing that you did on this list? Um, So I always kind of was like a hobbyist, I think it's called, growing up. So I would go into these different activities. And there was this quote that I learned when I was really young about uh, mid-maxing your life. And it's like, don't try and do everything. Try and do some things and do them really well and like focus on those. And so that's kind of what I did. And so, you know, some of my first hobbies were uh, like kind of random. I got into aviation for a while and became a pilot as well. Sure you did. No, he's, he's flying planes. And then um, later on uh, in college, I realized I really liked the space thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was fun, but I also loved business and making money. And so that's where the finance thing came in. And, uh, throughout that, I wanted to try my hand at endurance sports. I I had seen, I think it was a video on YouTube of, you know, that like Kona, which is the Ironman world championship, like the finish line. That they just had this last weekend. Yep. Yep. There was like videos where you see those people who are like crawling across the finish. And that was so inspiring to me. And I was like, that is something I want to do. I had never ridden a bike before. Um, I'm admitting that as a, uh, I guess I was what, 19 or 20 then, I had never ridden a bike. 
um, I had to learn and, uh, yeah, I had to learn basically while I was in college, how to ride a bike, but, um, I had never swam and, and I was just like, that's something I want to do. And that played into a larger goal of mine, which was kind of on the mountaineering side. And, and, uh, ultimately I wanted to get to the top of Everest. That was always something in the back of my mind since I was really young, but I never really saw the path to get there. And then all of a sudden there, the path kind of unfolded itself. And then, uh, I came to New York and I was working in finance and I just didn't see that lifestyle working out for me. Uh, and so that's why I kind of went off onto my own businesses. And one of those happened to be a frozen yogurt chop, 16 handles. And that turned into this little dessert empire in New York. And then it made sense to buy out the franchise. Itself. Yeah. People, people love dessert. They do. They're never going to get sick of it. Dessert yeah. is recession proof. Um, but it's very interesting because like you, when I was a kid, my dad was a marathon runner. And, you know, we would run, we would do road races and stuff. And in Oregon, you know, running is a religion and everyone runs. It's, you know, like in Indiana, everyone plays basketball. In Texas, everyone plays football. In Oregon, you just, you run, you do track, you do soccer as well. But running like Steve Prefontaine, like his legend permeates through the hearts of all Oregonian children. Um, So I would watch Kona with my dad and I was, I was the same way. I was like, I want to do a triathlon at some point. Um, And... It's interesting because when you get into endurance racing, it's so much of it is overcoming. And, you know, it's like that that mental challenge where you go through different phases of yourself. Yep. And it's like you go through your soothing self, and that's a nice self. And then you go through your really angry self, and the anger self is like, why are you here? Why yep. are you doing this? And, you know, using those and overcoming all of those it's so critical in endurance sports like that. So have you applied that mentality to other things like owning businesses and summiting Everest? Or is it like, I'm going to find the coolest sounding things that are very impressive and I'm just going to make a list of cool, impressive things and I'm going to tick them off one by one? No, it, it's definitely exactly that. It's like the endurance sports are so raw and like you really learn so much about yourself throughout the process and not even... You know, it's always about first finishing a race. And then when you're actually training for that race, you realize finishing the race is like the least of everything you're doing. Um, And it's the process of getting there and the journey and and everything you learn within it. And even during the race, it's like there's times during a race where I'm like, I don't even want to finish this thing anymore. Like I got everything I I needed. I've been there. I've I've been there like mile eight of a half Ironman. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to run. I do not want to run five more miles. I think this is stupid. This is a stupid sport. This is a dumb day. And and I have these conversations with myself. Yeah, there's, um, you know, you mentioned I I do some uh, longer distance stuff as well. And there's times where you're like on mile five of a hundred plus mile run. Yeah. And your ankle hurts and you're like, I'm not going to get through this day. And you just kind of have to work. Is this training or is this racing? Uh, I race the hundred mile ones. I don't, I don't go for fun runs that are hundred miles. Though I ha- I have friends who do. Um, but to, to your question, it's, uh, no, I, I don't look at them really because, uh, I want these certain accomplishments. It's just things that I think are cool and, um, these different, journeys that I can take and spend my time on other than just, you know, sitting at home watching TV or something. And, uh, that's what I find myself doing. And I get really addicted to the, the things that I focus on, um, which is sometimes a problem, but do you uh, abandon them because you know, you, you talk about being inspired by a quote to, to do something really well. So it sounds like you've done things well, and then you find another thing to do well. Yeah. So do you, do you, 
like, do you still pilot around for fun or are you just over planes? Yeah. So um, both in a sense, it's like you can't spread yourself too thin. Uh, and so at some point, you know, what you're focusing on in the present has to be what you're focusing on and you can't uh, be everywhere at once. And so um, a few of my passions and hobbies, you know, have faded over time, but that's also part of life is like you get interested in different things at different times. Um, but you're only so, 27. It's not like you're 57. I mean, you're 27 years old. That's You're a tiny person. And <laughs> I, I don't mean that in a condescending way at all whatsoever. I, I am overwhelmed by the amount of things you've done in a short period of time and actually appear to have really gotten something out of them. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to to give, you know, context when I haven't been older. So I can only speak to kind of what I've been through. But um, I feel like if you, if you spend your time doing things, um, and I grew up in like in a very adventurous, like we'll go spend our money on um, traveling somewhere or doing activities instead of buying nice cars or things like that. It's like that's what my parents instilled was important. Was, Where'd you grow up? Um, in Westchester, New York. So a little Lovely. bit north of the city. Yep. Absolutely. Lyme disease. Yeah. That's what <laughs> I know about Westchester. Times. Yep. We have more of this interview in moments coming up. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, so tell me about Everest because, you know, this is something where people who do spend decades mountaineering. Everest is too much for them to grasp. And, you know, it's like we've seen movies. Into Thin Air, that book, I don't know if you read that John Krakauer book, but it is so... I I, I thought John Krakauer did a really, really great job, that and Into the Wild, of explaining how people get drawn to mountains. And, like, the, the, the... physical and emotional force that's like a magnet that that draws you to something that is so much greater than you and and to a lot of people it's it's too big it's overwhelming and they see and you read stories about people who perish because the mountain is so much greater and it has moods and when it's done with you it disposes of you yep. so how how on earth did you get to Everest yeah um had you done mountaineering yeah, so I I looked at Everest as kind of this, that was the end point, right? That was the Ironman finish line, basically. And so to get there, um, you read a lot about it. You There's tons of movies and videos. And um, one thing became really obvious is that uh, there's kind of this pay-to-play on Everest um, idea that was coming to fruition of there's these guiding companies that will take anybody up. and uh, And that's kind of where you see the death rates start going up and and why you see um, all this bad press about it. And uh, so I knew I didn't yeah, want to the, go to Yeah, because the Everest. governments give too many permits to these companies and the company's like, yeah, we don't give a rip if you don't have any mountaineering experience. We'll give you crampons and some oxygen. You know, we got Sherpas. What else do you need? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely uh, some, some foul play on... Uh, 
on on a few different sides. But uh, ultimately, I, I wanted to do it in a way that was sustainable, but I didn't really know what that meant, right? So it started with smaller climbs um, in kind of more uh, more more well-known and, and more uh, simple mountains that uh, not only were easier to climb, but actually had a well-developed infrastructure on them of, of you know, training and, uh, and whatnot. And so I started on Mont Blanc in Switzerland and doing some other climbs in Switzerland and um, did some climbing in New Zealand. And then I went to Nepal Mount for Ropeo. the first time. Uh, no, I did Mount Aspiring out there. Nice. Um, but so beautiful. Uh, such a fun trip. And... Um, I went to Nepal for the first time uh, and just did a trek to base camp. Um, Now, base camp at Everest is still, you know, thousands of feet higher than the top mountain in Colorado. So it's still, um, you know, an arduous trek to get there. But uh, Can anyone do that or do you have to have a permit to go to base camp? No, I mean, there probably are some permits, but no, anyone can go for the trek. Um, Not everybody makes it. Uh, Some people do have to turn around. It's like, it's still very high. Because they become hypoxic and... Yeah, um, you know, for a few different reasons. It's also, you you know, the food there is uh, very limited and um, there's so many reasons. But, uh, you know, I did that and I climbed another uh, smaller peak out there called Island Peak. um, Just kind of as a, let's see what this whole Everest thing is about and... um, I really loved it out there. I loved the people uh, that I met through through the journey thus far, and it kind of instilled in me, okay, Everest is definitely... Did you feel uh, a connection? Did you feel almost a metaphysical connection with that part of the world? Because you, you now have some comparison. You're not just climbing peaks in the United States. You've been to Europe. You've been to New Zealand. So how were you differently connected there? Yeah, I, I think it's just the... Um, the attitude that the locals have towards the mountain. I mean, for them, uh, you know, the mountain's very spiritual and godly and, um, because of that, they want to treat it right. Uh, and they treat climbing it as a privilege more than, you know, uh, a, you know, some kind of accomplishment. It's a privilege to be on the mountain and, uh, and to be able to kind of see the views from the top, uh, so to speak. And so, you know that, and also it's just like it's great fun people. It's it's not about you know living this you know kind of New York life of of stress and running around and always being late and uh, making more money than the next person. For them, it's just uh, kind of living a more fulfilling, wholeful, uh, wholesome life. And so, being able to kind of balance those two and and spend time out there and seeing all that was was really nice and really important. Um, and so, I think a year later, I went back and climbed a peak out there called. Uh, Amadablam, which, you know, is is uh, uh, a little, you know, a little bit of a, a harder, more technical mountain, um, not quite as high as Everest, but, um, you know, it was a, I think, a 16-hour summit day, uh, and there's a few, um, a few spots on that where you're looking down at, at thousands of feet of drop, and you're sleeping on a tent that's kind of hanging off the ledge of the mountain, and so that was a great experience and uh and then covid hit and everything kind of got put on pause but at this point i had uh made a good friend uh Chum Chang, who who is a sherpa but he's um also he's a sherpa from you know nepal but he's also been around the world and uh and guided and you know been a not just an expedition leader but just a team member and and kind of seen different things and he was looking to grow his own local company and so this was more of like a test run of him and then us climbing as friends with uh, our other friend, uh, Marius, who's in Dubai, 
And so we all met in finally April 2022 in Nepal and made the trek out to base camp. And uh, we had our own way of climbing Everest that was a little bit different than most other teams where we actually didn't want to go back and forth through the Kumbu Icefall, which is mm-hmm. that was first kind of that first day or two days um, up Everest. It's this uh, glacier that's con- constantly shifting. And so to some extent, you have no control over what happens because if, uh, you know, 30 tons of ice comes smashing at you, what are you going to do? Even the best climber in the world can't do much. Um, you know, it, it's more about just climbing it at the right time, which is very early in the morning, right after the the deepest freeze um, and getting in and out of there. And so we climbed to Camp 2 and spent a while at Camp 2 really waiting for that weather window. It didn't come. So we how, long is that, how long is a while? like four days two no, weeks um yeah camp two i think on the first uh time we we got up there it's, i think it's twenty two thousand five hundred feet or so and we stay there for i think about two it's weeks like two mount hoods yeah it's 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 high and at that point there's no resources um just the food that we carried up um yeah there's obviously no toilets or any luxuries there's no internet um, so it was really us, some books and, uh, and, and just conversations and hanging out and, uh, it's, it's really cold. There was a lot of days where it just snowed and we basically just stayed in the tent all day. And, uh, and it's great. You get to spend a lot of time in your head thinking about things, but, uh, it's also a little bit boring, kind of like at the races, um, where at some point you're like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, why am I sitting I'm sure here? those thoughts creep in. Yeah, of course. You know, it's like, yes, with perspective you look back and you realize like this was life-changing this you know it's like my soul needed to do this but when you're in the moment like you got to be honest with yourself and be like this kind of sucks like this yeah. part of it maybe not the greatest part absolutely but then you know two weeks later i'm i'm sitting at camp four knowing that uh you know we're trying to go to sleep and it's like 11 p.m and we're waking up in three hours um to go uh to the summit wow and, and it's like, and then there's there's no. What's going through whatsoever. your head on summit day? Like, what what is what is your body feeling? Is it is it comparable to starting a big race? Is it unlike anything you've ever felt? Yeah, I mean, you're starting in what's called the death zone, right? So it's yeah, this, there's no this, option. Like yeah. you you have you can't operate. Yeah, so um, it's hard to say it's like starting a race because you're very much already in the race. Um, you know, everything's difficult up there. It's like you're putting on your boots in the tent. And, you know, if you weren't in a rush, even when you're in a rush, it takes you like 10 minutes to zip on a boot. Um, but if you got to move at the pace you'd want to, it would take like an hour to put on a boot just because you're like, you don't realize it necessarily in the moment, but you also are sort of aware that time is moving differently and your body's moving differently. But the actual work, um, you know, on summit day of of climbing the triangular phase, getting to the balcony, um, you know, ultimately climbing the South Summit to the Hillary Step, which is, you know, a, a very famous kind of final frontier before you get to the Summit Ridge. Um, it really felt like a day of work for me. Like, like you know, it was just I had I had done all this training and all this preparation, and uh, we kind of just kept climbing. And uh, right around sunset or sunrise, uh, we were at the Hillary Step, and I remember I. Probably one of the first words I said is I kind of took down my oxygen mask and I asked Jim, I was like, this is the Hillary step? And he goes, yeah, Hillary step. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. Um, and we when you going. get to that point, are there people who get to Hillary step who are turned around? Yeah, so 
we ended up, because we stayed at camp too long time on our actual summit push, um, part of the reason we did that is we knew the weather was going to be bad, but then there was this small window and then it was going to be bad again. We were kind of going right between two cyclones. And so some teams waited at base camp to see what that would look like. We went up to camp two and used our satellite phone to kind of check in on the weather. And so we were a little bit ahead of um, some groups. And so we were able to get to, you know, camp three, camp four, uh, a little bit before them. And so we actually summited and we're basically climbing the mountain alone. Um, we split up into, uh, two groups of two, um, or three, uh, between me, Marius, Jamchang, uh, Pasang. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we basically were on there alone, but yes, people, people do certainly get turned around well before the Hillary step, uh, earlier in the night, actually, there was a team, um, within an hour from camp four who, who did have somebody, I think who went snow blind. Um, and, uh, and so they were kind of tried to be helped, uh, back into their tent, I think, and, and back into the camp. Uh, and then, you know, there are the bodies on Everest. So there's always a reminder. Do you uh, see them? You do. I mean, you know, anything above camp four, especially that's in the death zone, it's going to take more effort for people to try and bring down those bodies uh, and put them at risk of becoming bodies themselves. And so, um, you know, for that reason, generally they're kind of left to just freeze and, and stay uh, because it's not worth risking your own life, you know, t to some certain extent uh, to save another one that's, you know, already... They're dead. Gone, yeah. Yes. So um, it's hard to say, you know, but... Uh, it, it's the it's the fact. Is that surreal though? Seeing that it is. I mean, there's certain steps that you have to take that you're within a few. You know, you're you're stepping within a foot of a guy who could have been frozen there for uh, you know years. Um, and because they're frozen, uh, they're pretty well intact. Mm. And so it's it's bizarre. Um, but again, you know, for me, it was very much like a day at work, and and it was about focusing on the climb, focusing on myself, making sure my breathing was good, making sure. Uh, you know, I, I tried to keep my extremities warm and, and didn't lose any fingers and toes and just, uh, kept moving, got to the top, How took long a photo, uh, probably like six minutes at most. Wow. Um, yeah, I really, uh, I felt like my, uh, toes were freezing up and, and certain fingers went, uh, past the point of what felt like frostbite, but you can't check during the time. Like, it's not like you can unzip your boot and be like, oh yeah, those toes are black or, you know, uh, like, you know, severe keep frostbite. Going. Hope for the best. Yeah, exactly. And, and so you keep moving and obviously you have to make the decision of at any point you want to turn around. But we knew with, with sunrise, we'd get a little bit of, um, uh, sun and that would help heat us up. The sun up at that altitude is much hotter and much stronger. Wow. I um, didn't even think about that. Yeah. Did you get to see the sunrise from the summit or does it rise before you? Yeah, get so we saw the sunrise from the summit and uh and what's cool is I have a picture where you can actually see the shadow of Everest above the horizon um during the sunrise. What's strange though is most of my summit memories are actually photos um that I've taken that are now in my head because uh, we had really strong winds on summit day. It was uh, 40, 45 mile per hour gust probably. Um, and so there's ice that, you know, gets pelted at you and it sticks to your your goggles because the condensation. Mm -hmm. and so I had like this little thin layer of ice on the front of my goggles that I couldn't melt away. Um, and it wasn't worth the time of trying. And so, uh, and you can't take off your goggles because you don't want to go snow blind yes. the sun and the, the, the snow. And so... Um, 
basically everything was a little bit blurry uh, at the top of Everest, but I have some pictures and uh, it really wasn't about necessarily the pictures or the view from the top. It was more the um, the challenge of getting there. And, you know, now that I'm home from it, I didn't even really think about or or, or remember the the summit day as much as I do, like the entire journey and and all the nights we had at base camp and camp two of me, Marius and Jam Cheng just like hanging out and uh, sharing some uh, some popcorn that we made or, or, you know, the one Snickers bar that we had to cut into thirds and <laughs> savor and, you know. So, oh, that is, but the, the, things like that, like you can't anticipate, but you'll never forget. Was your wife pregnant at the time? You no, um, no, this, that was, uh, this year. So how old is your baby? Uh, six weeks. The Everest was last year. Everest oh, was 21. Uh, yeah. 21. Oh, okay. I thought it was 22 and I was going to, I, cause if I was your pregnant wife, I'd be like, what the hell are you doing? No, so the, one of the goals with Everest in the back of my head was always, um, do it before you have a kid. Yeah. Do it yeah, before that's kids. Smart. Yeah. You know, it's either that or you do it like long after you have kids and then you're all tired and creaky. Yeah. Um, so what is next? You got to have something on the list. Yes. Yeah, so, more stuff. I mean, the, there was just, uh, I acquired this company, 16 handles. And so it's a really big focus right now on building a team around me and, uh, and building the infrastructure and the, the, the system so that we can not only keep our, our 30 plus units, um, happy and all of our franchisees profitable and successful, but how do we expand that and make it the next national, soft serve frozen yogurt player. There's been so many brands that have done it before. Hey, man, um, the key to all that is teenage girls. I'm silly with them. So if you ever need uh, tasters or people to be like, oh, my God, this is so gross, just let me know. But uh, they, they, I will I will tell you, like, it is, there is brand loyalty in absolutely. the Kennedalia household. So congratulations for that. Um, it's very exciting. And at some point, your own child will enjoy these delicious confections and that will that will be a, a new summit in your life. Absolutely, her baby naming was at one of the sixteen handles. So that's um, amazing. So she didn't get to try, uh, try it yet, but uh, all the friends and family did. That's amazing. Um, well, Neil, it's so good to talk to you. This is so fascinating. It is so deeply inspiring because you know you, you said a word talking about sixteen handles that I think can apply to all the different things that you do, and that's systems. Like when you come up with systems and you apply them. It, it really, like, your life and your experiences are limitless. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. This has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy. For more podcasts from my friends at Fox, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Oh, go ahead and leave me a review while you're there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You've been listening to Kennedy Saves the World on the Fox News Podcast Network. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.